The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Through the Glass Columns, your weekly read-along Wheel of Time podcast. We are slowly but surely making our way through the Eye of the World, book one in Robert Jordan's fantasy epic. I, of course, am Greg, someone who to whom this is completely new, but I'm starting to get my feet under me. And I am joined, as always, by my expert guide, Tyler. How are you doing, Tyler? Uh, I'm doing very well, Greg. I just have to say how impressed I am that you corrected yourself on whether to use who or whom, something that I do not understand. So your expertise is every bit as valuable as mine, I feel like, as we make our way through this setup. If I can't bring grammar, then what am I? Uh, So, uh, you know, I, I teach writing and gosh, it only takes a few times of some kid being like, oh, I can't believe the writing teacher made a mistake on the board that you really start to try to learn your grammar because it (laughs) really shames you uh, when that is. Uh, So yes, but thankfully there's no board to write on this time. So faithful listeners or singular listener, we really don't know at this point, Uh, but we are uh, joining you today to discuss uh, three chapters, our first three chapter episode. Uh, We are discussing chapter nine, Tellings of the Wheel, chapter 10, Leave Taking, and chapter 11, Road to Terran Ferry, which just sounds like an indie rock album of some kind. (laughs) It absolutely does. You could put .tumblr.com after that and I would believe you. (laughs) Uh, So do we want to just start with the recap of Tellings of the Wheel or do you have other preliminary things that we want to make sure we cover? Uh, The only thing I will mention preliminarily is that, uh, again, we uh, dropped a note at the very end of last episode, but you might have stopped listening by then, that this is uh, our first three-chapter episode, and and the goal is to always hit about 30 pages, but um, we wanted uh, listener feedback to know whether we should kind of go a little over or a little under on a given uh, time. Uh, So uh, we invite you to find our uh, social media, which we'll plug at the very end of this episode, uh, and just find us there and just give us your opinion so we know what to do uh, in the future when we come up with such a situation. But with that, I turn it over to you, our lore master, uh, for a summary of Chapter 9, Tellings of the Wheel. Uh, Yes, so Tellings of the Wheel is actually a chapter that to some degree comes in three acts, which is quite nice, right? The first third of the chapter is primarily concerned with the dreams that Rand is having. And at the end of the last chapter, we had gotten some kind of clues to maybe be paying attention to these dreams. So Rand makes his way first through kind of a barren wasteland being chased by Trollocs. And eventually he's confronted by a singular lone mountain at the edge of some sort of cliff, which he eventually 
eventually jumps off of to escape the voice in his head. It's a dream. It made total sense at the time. He then somehow finds himself uh, actually overlooking some scenery that we originally saw described in the prologue of this book, a large singular mountain with a river, and in the middle of the river is a city. And Ram sort of makes his way into the city. Everyone's happy and singing and things are happening. And then suddenly there is a merge rail at the top of the tower in the city, and he awakes. At this point, he is afraid that he has named the Dark One. He uh, is able to get some food in him, and he actually has a brief conversation with his father, primarily concerning both uh, the fact that he has to leave and what's just happened. And then Tam gives us some really interesting details about how he sees Aes Sedai, which I assume we're going to be talking about. And then the final section of this chapter um, is concerned with basically a, a mob outside of the inn uh, who are looking to force Moraine and Lan out of town. They believe that they brought the Trollocs. And Moraine tells a story of the history of the region that we are in and that dissuades the the riot from beginning. So it's kind of a lot of different things in this chapter, but I actually wanted to start, Greg, with the first of the three, because a couple of episodes ago, you mentioned that you kind of have a hard time in literature with dreams. Mm. So I'm curious how third of the chapter of dream kind of played out and, and what you were able to pull from it. Uh Yes. Well, and I, I said that specifically because uh, there was another fantasy series you had me start reading and it was very much based in dreams. Remind us or remind me and tell the listeners, what was the name of that one? Yeah. So you, I think I told you to read the Malazan Book of the Fallen, which is a 10 book epic, wonderful series. But as some people have had suggested to me, I actually had you start in the middle with book five, which I'm sure was also part of the issue. But yeah, that's definitely a series with all sorts of like dreams and prophecies. And I think I even know the scene you're talking about where a woman like hallucinates and dreams and flies through the air in the same scene. <laughs> it's incomprehensible. I'll give you that. Yeah. And, and so I, I, said at the time to Tyler and and it applies here as well that like there's something about when I am reading a dream sequence it's like because I know it won't matter really my eyes just do that thing where you read a couple words in every paragraph and you're not really taking anything in or paying too much attention to it yeah. um and you know that's I, I'm I want to be clear I'm not saying that this is like a great strategy of mine it's a failing because uh you know a lot of times good information is revealed you know I think the the kind of standard uh version of this is to kind of lay out the next act or the next set of events with uh kind of symbolism uh, instead of actual literal yeah. events or what have you um but I just it doesn't ever work for me now the beauty here is it started and I definitely fell for the trick that it was real. I'm like, yep. oh, he just went. Like there was no conversation. He's just gone. And then I was like, oh wait, he's by himself. And then it got weirder as as time went on. Um, and it's also like you noted, pretty brief. I mean, yeah. um, and it and it's clear very quickly. Um, it felt to me very much like a cinematic dream where it's just like a quick flash to remind you this is the antagonist. Uh, don't forget this. Yeah. Um, and so you know this kind of quick switcheroo of oh you're seeing the the dream um you know i i assumed that was tar Valon. uh yeah. i it was news to me in your summary that it was from the prologue i hadn't made that connection um and so like i'm like 
pulled in, it's like, okay, here's where we're going. Um, you know, Lord of the Rings, they often have uh, visions of Minas Tirith before they get there and things like that. And then like, uh, you know, the jump scare you could picture of, oh, right. nope, it's it's uh, the, the mere drawl. So um, yeah, I just rambled a bunch. So that's about what I took from it. Um, what uh, either did you take from it or what should I have taken from it? Yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've kind of covered the big things. To me, what's really interesting in this sequence is it's about maybe like two thirds of the way through the dream when Rand is, and, and I'm comfortable saying this, you got it. He's in Tarvalon, right? That's what yeah. he's dreaming about. Um, but once he like gets into the city, it, he's describing like there's a bunch of music and people are dancing and singing and they're cheerful and they're happy. And then he like pauses and everyone stops. And then he starts moving towards the tower again and everyone's happy again. To me, that's the only moment that stood out to me as anything other than exactly what you're describing, right? Everything else in there feels kind of like textbook. This is where we're going. This is a vision of, you know, what the next couple chapters are going to be. Here's some, you know, foreshadowing. But just the fact that we had that one moment where it almost seems like the dream is trying to get Rand to do something or the dream is responding positive when he's acting in the way it wants and not when he's not, that's not like typical dream logic to me. So that was the one moment that I was like, huh, maybe something other than what you're describing is going on. But no, I think you're right. For the most part, at least this dream is, is it, it's kind of doing what dreams typically do in literature. Hmm. It was, uh, you know, we talked, gosh, I think back in the second episode, not counting the the teaser, the preview. Sure. Of, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the how I said, "Oh, there's a yin yang," and you're like, "Actually, buddy, it's not a yin yang. Uh, there's it's missing the dots, right? It's the right. balance without the the core." And uh, I reading this dream that came to mind because the imagery of the city is all white and pure and light and good, all the the things, yeah. you know, all the things that that are symbolic in problematic ways. I realize now I'm like, yeah, it's all things good, white. Uh, sorry. Right. Uh, but, you know, uh, dealing with a set of symbols anyway. Um, and, and here in this dream, it actually is the yin yang, right? Because at the very center of the city yep. of light, there is the darkness and the dark, uh, the dark uh, mirror draw there. Not, not necessarily the dark one, not, right. not the dragon lord or anything like that. Um, and so that is, to me, that speaks to, this is either a fear, right? Like that there is something behind all this that is sinister. Um, they keep referring to the age of legends throughout these chapters and the previous war. Yeah. Um, and maybe that means this war is going to be different because there is something rotten at the core. Or uh, it, it could just be a fear or it could be the reality, I guess are the two things I, I intended to say, right? right. Um, and I'm curious to see what which, which this ends up being, but it feels more like fear because we have this protagonist who's just encountering this world for the first time and he's got his own doubts and misgivings. Yeah, and I like that we get this scene after what we had in, I forget if it was one chapter ago or two chapters ago, where Moraine kind of offers Rand, if you have any you know, bad dreams, if anything's out of the ordinary, come right. to me. Because I think that's the moment where I start asking about duality of this, right? If Moraine doesn't mention dreams are important, I think I probably do what you normally do. And I'm just like, okay, it's a dream. It's some foreshadowing, no big deal. But I think because we have that in the back of our minds, we're, we're kind of constantly 
asking like how much of this is fear how much is reality how important are dreams in this world like there's a lot of things that are kind of unclear at this point that you know that just sentence or two kind of threw threw into doubt for me in this section which i think is is pretty effective um and then i, I i'm curious just this is a random detail but did you catch the name of the dark one because rand wakes up shocked that he said the dark one's name in his dream and yet it was like three and a half pages ago by the time that he says that uh, i don't think i did no the dark the dark one's name is shaitan at one point at the end of like the first half of the dream um uh ran shouts something like light consume you shaitan and then it like cuts to the second dream the second dream happens and then he wakes up and he's like oh my god i named the dark one it's horrible so mm. it's a really easy thing to mention or to miss but yeah, that's the name of the dark one. Um, he then wakes up and Tam is there, which um, when I first read this the first time, I remember being shocked. I was like, oh, we're never going to see this dude again, right? Mm. I was kind of like, by the time that Rand is gone and he's awake, we'll, we won't get that moment between Tam and Rand. I was assuming for five, 10 books, right? Like it's a fantasy series. They take their time. Um, so I'm curious, was that something that surprised you as well? Was that a reunion kind of what you expected or did it do things that kind of pulled you out of what you were anticipating from the story? Uh, I think, I don't think I was surprised that they would say goodbye to each other. I thought, you know, that's that's good writer's fodder, right? To, to be able to give the tearful goodbye between these two men who have only had each other their whole lives. But I think I was expecting Tam to be much more out of it, um, right? Mm -hmm. He seems like his normal self kind of uh, popping up and he's just like, oh, hey, what's going on? Gets the exposition download and we don't get it repeated, but we know he gets all that. Yep. He's just like, cool, well, be a little careful and uh, I'm going to work on getting a new herd. And it's like, you just found out that your son is targeted and is going on this epic quest. And all you want to do is make sure your farm is okay. And, you know, we've established how important sheep are to these people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that fits, but it was like, Oh, it's really, you know, it, it ended up being like, yeah, of course they'd give him a goodbye scene, but it wasn't any kind of maudlin emotional thing. It was just kind of done. And then I think kind of towards the end, it's just like, yep. Okay. We're good. Like it really, it did. You could have made more of a meal out of it, but Robert yeah. Jordan kept it simple and, and straightforward. And that could be characterization or it could just be, you know, part of it now. Um, so you emphasize this in your summary. So the one thing I mainly honed in on is he uh, Tam is really suspicious of the Aes Sedai, uh, saying repeatedly that they are tricksome, that yep. they do things for their own reasons. Um, all of that to me sounded like backstory, right? He's right. been fooled sometime in the past. There was a time he was working with or alongside an Aes Sedai and just was fooled into doing something that he now regrets or just, you know, uh, sees now that it was hollow in some way. Yeah. Well, and I like that we not only see Tam kind of be really, he, he's clearly distrustful of I said, I, you're right. And there's something going on in his past. There's something causing him to kind of feel that way. But then I think that's contrasted with what you noted, which is the fact that it takes him about four seconds of hearing what the I said, I said to be like, yeah, you're going to leave forever. That's just how it is. And so I think that tension is really interesting to see both how he clearly 
distrusts anything to do with Aes Sedai, but as soon as Moraine says, like, we've got to go, he kind of accepts that you've got to go. The other thing that I think is really interesting that kind of highlights how he thinks of them as being tricksome is when he asks uh, Rand to say what Moraine was describing in the exact words that she said, right? And I think he even says something, I, I, I have, like, briefly paraphrase this. He says something like, an Aes Sedai, they don't lie, but the truth isn't always the truth you think it is. And I feel like that is, you know, really useful for thinking about, like, how is 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 Tam framing this, you know, kind of dichotomy of don't trust them at all, but believe them when they tell you the Trollocs are coming. It's kind of like, they're going to tell you the truth, but be very careful about what that truth actually is and what it actually means sort of thing. Yeah, and, and so again, as I start to figure out who these Aes Sedai are, it doesn't seem as simple as these are Jedi, right? These are the, the characters of light. Um, and it often feels in that description you just read and, and the, the quote I pulled out, that they are playing a much larger game than any simple town folk. And so... Um, you know, this this was true in the opening chapter with Moraine when she like listened carefully to what the boys said, offered them help and protection, but clearly got their oaths and and kind of gave them enough truth that they believed her and, and got her will done before they got their will uh, or their needs satisfied or so on. So so that's all very fitting to me. Um well, no, I, I will, actually, yeah, oh, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, I actually just had a second example of that because yeah. I think that's a really good example. But also, we had, I think it was in like the third or fourth chapter, the conversation between Tom and Moraine, where Tom is kind of introducing himself and he's like, I have all of these amazing stories. And when Moraine shows up, they almost have like a, like, over the top of the heads of the villagers, almost like negotiation. Now, I think we, if you go back to that scene, you can see it's basically Moraine telling Tom, don't tell anyone I'm Aes Sedai, right? And he's like, okay, cool, no big deal. And so I think we see a few situations there of her kind of manipulating the situation without letting the information she doesn't want into what the villagers are hearing. And, and that I think is kind of what Tam is, is, is thinking about. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Deb. Oh, no, not at all. And, and thank you for that added example of that. And that's, that is compelling in a way that, you know, a purely good moral character is not. So that's uh, that's that's certainly gonna keep me reading along. Now, um, I will admit that it actually was, I think I was into the next chapter when I was suddenly like, oh wait, why didn't Rand ask Tam about his fatherhood, right? Yep. And so he just doesn't, is is accurate? It, it my read, it, it's not explicitly stated. My kind of like assumption of the connotation of the text is like there's a moment where he's about to and then he chickens out. Okay. And that's kind of all we get. And that fits with his emotions ahead of this that he is certainly curious about it, but fearful of what it will really reveal and what it will mean for him kind of big picture long-term. But it was kind of shocking. Like, you know, I mean, if that was weighing on my mind, I feel like I'd ask dad as soon as dad got up, but um, yeah. you know, I, he's obviously infirm and, and all that, but in all that was just downloaded um, yeah. about how he's a target. It seems like both he should have asked and golly, Tam should have volunteered if there was something that made Rand a particular target. Um, but you know, maybe he is safe enough 
uh, knowing that Rand is going to be with the Aes Sedai and is not worried about protecting him from whatever this truth is. But it was suddenly like that, that seemed like such a driving force in two or three chapters before this. And then it was just like, wait, now is the moment and, and it doesn't happen. So, well, I, at very least, I'm glad I didn't miss it and like yeah. it had a poor reading moment. <laughs> yeah, no. And I think, I think that's really interesting to some degree because there's a story there that makes a lot of sense, right? This is literally a, you know, a young man saying goodbye to his father, what he fears might be the last time. He probably wants to say goodbye to his father, not to the person who might not be his father, right? He'd rather hang on to that illusion. I just feel like we need that in the text a little bit more, right? We can, we can get there. We can arrive at that conclusion, but like, it would be a little better if Rand thought it instead of us kind of assuming it, you know, that's, I, I think I agree. It's not a plot hole, but it's, it's pretty thin papering over what could be a plot hole. Um, that being said, I think the last section of this chapter also has some, I love the world building in the story that Moraine tells and show viewers will know uh, a decent chunk of the story that Moraine tells actually ends up word for word in the second episode of the television show. So oh, wow. this is a relatively important scene, at least as far as you know the creatives involved with the show were concerned. So I'm curious what your thought was of the, the tale of Menethrin and how, you know, this kind of almost weird history gets thrown in in the middle of an otherwise you know mob related chapter yeah um so i i mean again i devote my life to writing to literature to stories so a time when you can turn an angry mob around with a story and with the power of words i mean there's obviously a little spectacle there as well but i was like all into this in terms of a plot um especially kind of on the that that level the actual details of the story i found pretty tricky um okay. it, it was definitely like i read a couple paragraphs and i'm like let me take this again um and you know not unlike we were talking about with a dream i, I mean it was a lot of names a lot of yeah. uh, events and places and it's like well what am i what am i going to care about here so um as i well i I'll let you mainly take over it, but I will say the other complicated factor is I got, again, like three quarters of the way through it. And I was like, shoot, this is probably one of those things that Tyler <laughs> talked about where this is like a real world thing. And so I stopped and I'm like looking at the names and I'm trying to interpret them. And, you know, they're all kind of bizarrely tuckerized and all that yeah. stuff. So, so I, I, I didn't unlock it in that regard either. So uh, I'll take I, clarity on one or either. <laughs> yeah, I have not unlocked the code. If Menethrin is a real thing that happened, I would love to hear about it. Those of you who are veterans on our feed, we actually, Greg, we'll talk about this and, and mention it on the next episode. We need to figure out a way for some sort of spoiler tag. If you're the one mostly reading social media, that could be a problem. Oh, that's true. <laughs> um, that being said, uh, no, I'm not aware of this being like a real world allegory of any specific like battle or situation um that being said like the the crux of the story as i understand it right mostly honestly from re-watching the television show as much as from reading this chapter over and over again is basically uh Menethrin was this great uh kingdom it was where uh the two rivers are now or at least relatively close in you know the mountains nearby um and it was a kingdom that was you know really important in what we're called the trolloc wars which we'll learn a lot about a lot more about as we go um but at some point the trollocs decided we're going to kill Menethrin. the Menethrin army 
barely made its way back to defend their village. And they basically thought if we can hold out for three days, reinforcements will arrive, we will survive. And 10 days later, they somehow were still holding out. It should have been impossible, but no one came. And so the army of Minethrin was basically wiped out by the Trollocs. But upon doing so, the queen of Minethrin used the one power and drew so much of it that she killed all of the Trollocs, but she also died and destroyed basically the entirety of the like city and the buildings of Minethrin. And so all that was left was some survivors who had fled into the mountains and then eventually settled as shepherds in the two rivers, right? So that's the kind of bare bones version of the story. But of course, I, I love this section as much for the, the lovely writing as I do the actual mm -hmm. story itself. Yeah, and and as I understood it, she is uh, standing there spinning her staff, and there are sparks coming out of it. And the sparks, uh, it, it's emphasized, spin straight out. They don't bend essentially with the speed of the spinning. They don't drag, which is very curious as an image, right? Yeah. And like, what is that? Why is that that happening? Okay, so I think I got the gist of it there. And as I understood why the people were convinced by it, it was, it was to say to them, you're not simple people. You yeah. were, you, you are, uh, belong to something greater. You were once something bigger than this. Um, and so you should be proud of that and you should reawaken that. Yeah. And to me that, of course, that's primarily motivated by like, let's just get me out of this uh, sticky situation, this mob and so yeah. on. But also a reminder to people of uh, what has passed and what will come again, that that if something is brewing, they're not going to be able to just be shepherds uh, for the time to come. Um, and that was, it was Eamon and Eldrine? Yes. Yeah, so those, those were the two figures. Okay, again, balancing out the one power is feminine and yep. the, the women wield that, that power. Curiously in this scene, I thought it was really interesting how the first person to jump to defense of Moraine is Bran, the innkeeper, yep. right? Yeah. And so that made me think again about these larger politics. The wisdom is not here at all. Yep. And I believe the mob, at least the like named members are mostly men as yeah. Well. Yeah, so I believe like, the mob is either exclusively male or almost exclusively male. Um and I think there's only I think Sen Bui is the only character in the mob who we've really had any interaction with before and he's okay. just like kind of a jerk in the meeting. So like it's not a ton of like named characters we have a whole lot of background with, but you're right. I think it's almost exclusively male and then the only people who do kind of end up defending Moraine, I think it's basically um, like you said, it's it's Bran, the innkeeper, and then is it the it's Master Luhan, the the blacksmith, right? Mm -hmm. I think those are the only two who who stand up for her. Yeah, and and so I mean, temperatures cool, but it it again makes me wonder about who holds the real power in this village. I mean, uh, Bran was kind of less being the mayor and more being the innkeeper, although both were mentioned in the the passage. So that was curious uh, to yeah. me as well and um you know uh if if she just saved this whole village but i understand their anger at her it's like well but then where are all these other factions as a part of this um and it seems to me i need to be satisfied with like doesn't matter because they're gone now yeah we're it. we're leaving them we're behind. gone we'll see you behind i uh, see us uh, in four books or whatever uh maybe uh we're not gonna uh, worry about this town's politics too much more 
Um, so I have no further notes for this, uh, this chapter, except to ask a question, which is, uh, what do you make of the title of the chapter? So tellings of the wheel feels very grand, yeah. especially, I mean, I appreciate you breaking it down into thirds. Those first two thirds don't seem very grand or important. Yeah. So is this just referring to the, the mythology or, or what do you, what do you take from that title? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because you're right each of the three thirds each of them fits the title just a little bit better than the last one right the mm. the dream i have no idea how this is a telling of the wheel right it's it's rand having a dream that maybe has some you know foreshadowing or something that will tell us about something of the wheel weaving whatever right but then the second section a we do we don't read it but Rand does give a telling of, you know, some story or some turning of the wheel to Tam. He tells what happened. And then we get a lot back. It's like, okay, maybe I think the chapter is basically named after the, the Menethrin story, right? Like that's okay. the, the big piece there. That's the major telling. But yeah, it's, it's interesting that it's, it's pluralized. It makes us, I feel mm. like the, the literal interpretation of that is almost like Rand telling, Moraine telling, and the dream telling i'm not mm. sure how you fit that third piece into it but no that's a really interesting point cool uh well then i'm satisfied are you sir uh, i am however i did want to just add one quick quote from moraine's story that is mm. not useful right now but i want to get on people's plates for like 30 chapters from now or whatever <laughs> oh, um boy. so when referring to one of the battles in the, the war in the Trolloc War, when we're talking about the battle at Menethrin, um, we get the following quote. Some of the Trollocs have raised a banner of Baalzaman, heart of the dark, an ancient name for the father of lies. And then she later says, the dark one could not have been free of his prison at Sheol Ghul, or all of the forces of humankind could not have stood against them, but there was power there. And so that introduction of something that's not the dark one, but is almost as powerful and almost as dark, and it has a name, and it's Beelzebub. Very reminiscent of Beelzebub, of course. Yes. Uh, which, uh, now I'm trying to remember my Milton, is uh, a named lieutenant of Satan in uh, hell, and the raising of the, the uh, pandemonium, of course, is the name of uh, Satan's fortress in hell. Um, so, okay. All right. you, you didn't need to show off. I was impressed by whom, but yeah, that's, that's good background <laughs> info. Uh, so yeah, let's dive then into the second of our three chapters for the day, uh, which was chapter 10, leave-taking. So leave-taking all takes place basically in a stable, which if it's going to be a bottle episode, that's a solid bottle episode. <laughs> you, um, you just had to pay for the spinning staff and the animation <laughs> for the story. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Save a little budget. Um, so it, we, we originally, basically everyone arrives in the stable. We learn that Lan has given Perrin instructions to kind of search and make sure that no one is watching them. We learn that Moraine and Lan seem to have acquired horses for uh, Perrin, Matt, and Rand. And very quickly, the story is basically everyone getting ready to leave, and then all of the unexpected people who are also on the trip. The first of which is Egwene. She arrives, insists that she's going to, you know, be able to attend. Um, and Moraine, basically, as soon as she learns that Egwene can keep a secret, um, Moraine relents. She says, absolutely, 
yes, you can come along. We then realize that Tom has also been waiting in uh, the loft of the stable. He insists that he's also coming along. He seems to be able to go as soon as Moraine realizes that he's greedy. That's a thing we might want to talk about. Um, and then, you know, we get a brief scene of the group kind of getting out of this town of Emmons Field, occasionally avoiding some of the patrols that have now been set up to watch for Trollocs. Um, but similar to what we talked about a couple of chapters early on, I find this to be effective setup and effective storytelling, but it's it's a little slight. It's It's kind of the and then the gang got together chapter. Was that your impression as well? Uh, yeah, I, I, I wrote in my notes, this is where you just have to move the chess pieces to where they need to be for yeah. the, the next piece of plot. You know, um, I, again, I, you could just put the Tracy Morgan quote from 30 Rock under me, tell it to me like it's Star Wars. Um, this to <laughs> me was the middle of Revenge of the Sith, which is, yeah. you know, you have this great opening and then it's like, oh, we know when the Empire springs up, all these people have to be separate and here. So you have this middle chunk of the movie that's just like, it, it, it doesn't really matter, yada, yada, yada. He's yep. mad at him and then you get them where they need to be. And so it very much felt like that. It felt to get like uh, creating a fellowship, you know, it made me think of you have my ax and there's yeah. an ax uh, yeah. and and my uh, uh, bow uh, and then the everybody comes together. So, uh, so yeah, actually this and the next chapter, I really didn't take many notes and I don't have too much to say, but um, I will say, uh, you know, um, interesting, uh, when, when, uh, Perrin reveals that he does have this ax, um, Lon is just like, better get used to fighting guys. Like, yeah. uh, again, I, I still am a little cool towards him. He doesn't really do anything in either of these chapters to change that general impression for better or worse. Um, but it's like, you know, he's, he's realistic. He's like, yeah. you're about to leave this sheep's fold, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so you have to be ready to kill without, uh, you know, uh, hesitation. And, and that, uh, I think is, is, you know, it's, it's certainly engaging, but it's, it's also like, you know, the, they're about to be, uh, deeply over their heads. Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and I think a really interesting piece of characterization for Lan in the midst of that idea is how he refers to all of them by their profession right? Mm -hmm. Rand is sheep herder and Perrin is blacksmith. And I forget what his term for Matt might be. It might even just be sheep herder as well. But they, I, I think he, you're exactly right. He's like, look, you're going to have to get used to this. You're in over your head. And part of the way he identifies that is like, Moraine is an Aes Sedai. She's fine. I am a warder. I am fine. You are a sheep herder duck, right? And I think that characterization of him as being so practical, you don't even have a name, you just have a role, kind of summarizes exactly what you're describing. Like, it's it's hard to get too into a character who won't even give our main character a name at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like, it's, I'm sorry, I'm struggling for words because I don't hate him still right like, I'm, I'm cool to him i'm not cold to him i'm i'm you know i i'm curious to learn more about him and why this is and is he just so deeply utilitarian like you're saying he can't use names he can't get attached yeah. um and you know i want to learn more about how many times has this guy been around the block right, right. maybe he doesn't get attached because he's like an immortal and these are you know ants to him uh, or what have you um my personal favorite 
for uh, kind of writing bit in this uh, chapter is I believe twice uh, Moraine says, what is done is already woven in the pattern. Yep. Um, and as a turn of phrase, I really loved that. And um, this may be just very idiosyncratic of me, but um, so, so uh, again, I think we've told listeners, I uh, have my PhD in American literature and um, my favorite uh, American novel is, is Moby Dick because I'm a walking, talking cliche. Uh, so, uh, you know, I do love Moby Dick. I think it's the great American novel and embedded within Moby Dick is so much obviously, but there's this one chapter that scholars like, but don't love, but I kind of love. Um, and it's, it's actually called the Mat Maker, M-A-T. So it, it fits right. with uh, <laughs> one character here. Uh, but uh, in that chapter, uh, Ishmael uh, Queequeg, his, uh, you know, his roommate, best friend, soulmate, uh, are making mats aboard the Pequod just deep out at sea. And like Ishmael is wont to do when there's nothing going on, he finds like something meditative about life. And he comes up with what he thinks is basically his system for the universe. And it's, it's because because they're using a loom to weave these mats. And on a loom, you have the strict rigid strings, which he calls fate or destiny. And then the shuttle that shoots back and forth, that's free will because the person decides, oh, I'm going over these two, under these two or whatever pattern they want. And then the third piece is Queequeg smushes it all down um, and that's chance. Cause sometimes Queequeg is exactly even, sometimes it's crooked, all of that. So, I've always loved this moment in Moby Dick where they're like, this is how the universe works, right? It's this, this woven tapestry of free will, destiny, and chance. And so to then see this, you know, respected mythological character here, I'm like, ah, she believes in Ishmael's universe. Like, you know, and there's not nearly as much there to, to, to yeah. warrant that leap I just made, but it's so very much felt to me like, you know, um, she understands that they can have the best laid plans, but, when there's chance, chance just happens. And if if Egwene is here, then Egwene is coming. And if Tom is here, then Tom is coming and, and so on. And so I liked that um, ability of our character who seems the most in control to be willfully out of control or give up that control willfully in some way. Uh, I'll be honest, I have not read Moby Dick since I was like 19 and I forgot that that chapter existed and that is definitely <laughs> the inspiration for what Moraine is saying and other things she will say as we keep going. Um, Ishmael was right about how the Wheel of Time world works, I guess is kind of what I'm saying. So get pumped about that. I um, am, if people could see me dancing on this Zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess for me, the thing that I pulled out, which was not nearly as interesting or literary uh, was the moment when Moraine says yes to both of the two intruders on the group because they're very different moments but I think they both work and I highlighted it a little bit in my in my summary but Egwene Moraine is very doubtful until she asks did anyone else notice we were sneaking out did you tell anyone and as soon as Egwene says no and no she says perfect you're in done right so Egwene being discreet was her kind of standard um Moraine when Tom says he wants to arrive basically is like why and Tom more or less implies like he says I've never been to Tarvalon before I would love to perform in Tarvalon. I am willing to pay whatever price an Aes Sedai might ask to travel with an Aes Sedai to Tarvalon, right? And I read that as Moraine being like, okay, 
this dude's like, he's a bard. He wants to play songs. I have an opportunity to give him to play songs. He's greedy and therefore I know what he wants and therefore I can plan around it. And I thought those two moments, they're very different reasons to accept people, but I think they maybe say something about Moraine and how she's kind of like thinking through this process. Um, did, did you notice either of those or were there anything else that she did other than the Ishmael phrase that jumped out to you? <laughs> um, I will say, uh, not necessarily attributing this to Moraine, but the presence of Tom surprised me most of all because, um, you know, I, I kind of expected Egwene to come along. I, I think you had hinted that the show kind of hand waved some of this so that she yeah. just gets to come. Uh, but, uh, you know, there was enough kind of uh, plot built up around her and Rand that it's like, yeah, she's coming, like yeah. whether, uh, even if she's not invited. Um, but then Tom's presence, I was like, oh, him too? Him? Uh, and like, because the peddler was just kind of dispatched yeah. without much fanfare. And so I just kind of assumed we'd lost the Gleeman as well in there. Um, so more than anything, I think Tom's presence was just a surprise to me. He also appears so suddenly there's this suggestion he has some skill and that yeah. resonates with, they noted how he disappeared so handily during the the trolloc raid so i think there's something more to that if that is just you know some some skills i'm not necessarily suggesting magic or anything like that um that's intriguing to me and, and to know why is there uh so when you articulated those differences about why they are coming both of those seem to me that moraine just wants to guarantee that they're predictable that yeah. they're not going to add any kind of uh, dangerous element or something she needs to be worried about. If she can understand their pure motives, then bully for her, she can control them. She understands what to expect from them. It's a little interesting to put that alongside Tam's comments from the last chapter where it's like, oh, they're always going to be about their own reasons, even if they say they're for yours. So I guess I'm going to leave those assuming that she has her own reasons for wanting them to be here that yeah. she can just hold close to the chest as it were. Absolutely. And honestly, that's what I've got for this chapter, right? I'm like, Moraine yeah. has some cool motives and said some things about weaving. That's, that's kind of what's here. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to make sure we talked about? Uh, they name drop the drag cur, drag cur. Drag car is how I've drag said it, but I have car. no idea. Yeah. Drag car. Uh, and so I was like, well, this will be when we introduce a new creature and we'll have to talk about it here. But I think we should just kick that into the next chapter because what else are we going to talk about in the next chapter? <laughs> that is correct. Uh, I, I just have two like very quick things before we get to the next chapter. Um, yeah. One is if you are a show watcher, congratulations. You've made it to the end of episode one. Um, good wow. for you. It only took us 120 pages. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention is, is something that you actually know very well about me, Greg, uh, is that my love of fantasy and sci-fi kind of exists in terms of me, you know, attaching to characters and worlds and all of that. But it also requires one very important thing, which is that a world has something absolutely adorable that I can think is really cute, right? Um, mm. 
you recently bought me a stuffed pizza dog from the Hawkeye TV show, and that is the perfect gift for me. I was and- just going to out you, and you beat me to it. So there's, <laughs> it's clear there's no shame that I was in California and flew a pizza dog back across the country for you uh, just because it was adorable and your spirit animal. It was so. the correct decision. I appreciate it. But I also wanted to mention in this stable, we are introduced to obviously very important characters who are going to be along, like Tom and Egwene, but we also meet my source of adorable in this series uh we all need to just take a moment and appreciate bella the pony who i am going to bring up over and over again throughout this podcast so be aware this is appearance number one of bella and we need to get that fan club going um that being said uh the third of our three chapters today uh is the road to terran fairy and honestly the summary of this chapter is the group takes the road to terran fairy right they ride really quickly they wear out their horses Moraine does some interesting magic that seems to remove the tiredness from the horses and from their riders. Lan and Moraine are the only ones who don't benefit from this. Um, We then hear the drag car scream. It scares everyone. Moraine summons some like mist or fog to obscure their path. They make it to Terran Ferry and Lan basically bribes a person to take them across the river. And That's pretty much the chapter. So given how kind of quick and action oriented this chapter is, right? It's not a ton of world building. It's not a ton of character. It is plot. Um, What was, you know, your your approach to kind of doing notes for this chapter? Because I'll tell you, mine are short. Uh, Mine are short as well. And I find they're mainly descriptive of the plot just to keep my memory more than any kind of insights or questions. Um, my mind was purely in Lord of the Rings world here. Uh, yeah. There are a couple sequences in, in uh, especially Fellowship of the Ring, the movie. Um, you know, there's this, this silly moment where um, the the hobbits are deciding to leave the, the town um, and um, Mary turns to them and just says, Buckleberry Fairy. And so when in my head, yep. I kept going, Terran Fairy. Uh, and they just have to get to the fairy. And I know in, in Lord of the Rings, the hobbits, well, in the movie, they jump dramatically onto the raft and the horse uh, can't yep. make the jump, uh, the Nazgul. Uh, so they're they're safe. Uh, here, it's it's certainly not that. It's it's a little different there. So um, the only, the the most useful thing to me then seemed to be building out Moraine's power set, right? Yep. I'm building her character sheet for D&D. Uh, this refresh or renew animal power seems yep. powerful. And it's not just that the horse has recovered, but later Rand notes it seems particularly vigorous, like yep. it's, it's uh, better than even before they, they started. Uh, and then as I understood it, she has this fog, ability is the fog from her i believe so yeah i I think it's at least implied to be because the right before the fog appears there's a brief moment where rand can't catch a conversation between moraine and lan but we hear moraine's answer to something that lan has asked and she says something like no i can't kill a drag car definitely not from a moving horse but i can and then it's like almost the next like paragraph or two when all the mist starts to appear so i think it's implied it's her but yeah, we, we kind of learned the limits of her powers in this. She she can't kill things while she's, you know, expending energy doing other things. She can help others, you know, restore their energy, but she can't restore her own. And, you know, she's kind of, it almost sounds like she's like reduced to kind of playing the trickster in this section because she's not powerful enough to do much else in the face of the overwhelming odds they're facing. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's nice that it there is a limit though, yeah. right? Like whether it's concentration and the horseback doesn't allow that or just the amount of power she needs to draw from something. Um, absolutely. Uh, I like that there are limits to it. Again, I think we talked before about like the baby Yoda nap. Um, like, yeah. like there is a way in which it, you need to limit this in some way because people just become too powerful. Yeah, Superman is just not a fun story, right? You need no. something other than kryptonite. <laughs> um, and so then I will say, uh, the one question I wrote down to ask you is, like, should I be following the map very closely? Should I flip back to the beginning and track where we are in the names of these things? Um, but then in writing down the chapter names for next week, I saw we get another map very soon. That, yes. Uh, not uh, chapter 12, but chapter 13 starts with an updated map. So I'm going to go ahead and answer my own question and assume have a rough idea and just kind of check each map as we come to it, probably. Yeah, I think there are sections of later books where that map is really important. And we have like, you know, are these territories like near each other or far apart? Or how difficult is it going to be to traverse? In this first book, honestly, like we kind of like go from Emmons Field to Terran Ferry. That's like kind of on the map. And then we spend a decent chunk of time in like the middle of roads or planes that aren't always on the map or are difficult to find on the map or you need the smaller map to kind of get there. My advice with the map in this book is like, look at it when you're like, wait, where is that? But I don't think you really need to be like tracking yourself on each of the maps as you go. It's not that kind of like, we are here, so we need to whatever kind of story. It's much more about, this is so cliche, but it's about the journey, Greg. Oh, okay. And the friends we made along the way. Yeah. Uh, Tom and Egwene and uh, Bella. And Bella, yeah. <laughs> uh, then that taps me out for this chapter. I had nothing further. Yeah, I have two other quick things. Um, the sure. first is, is just to note that when uh, Moraine is going around and healing all of the horses, she does take a moment and is almost surprised. She says Bella is the least tired of all of the horses and needed her help the least, which is the opposite of what anyone would have assumed going into it. So there's obviously, um, you know, potentially something interesting going on there. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting in this section, you brought it up earlier, is we get just vague hints of this creature, the drag car, but we don't get much, at least so far, right? And so this feels to me so far kind of like they're they're doing the Jaws thing, right? They're giving mm -hmm. us just enough detail that we can, you know, picture it ourselves and, you know, worry about what's off screen, but not see anything on screen. Um, so I'm curious, just with the drag car, what your reaction to our third new monster in 11 chapters was and, and how you perceived kind of the way that this is being shown and portrayed differently than we've seen with the other two that are just kind of like on screen immediately. Yeah, so I think the shrieking, um, it was interesting to me that the shriek was so powerful and I don't mean that literally, but like in, in instilling fear. So it freaks yeah. out the horses. I believe Rand's horse bucks him off uh, in that moment. Um, we also have this hint that the Watch Hill Village was still having their party yeah. uh, because nothing had happened here. And yet once the shriek happens, it all shuts down and, and locks out. So, so defined by its shriek, as I think in the previous chapter, it was basically like, oh, well, you know, when they created the Trollocs and the Fades, they kept going. And there's just this hint that there are there's a menagerie of monsters to come, that yeah. we're just going to meet more and more grotesque and horrifying um, beasts. Um, 
and the emphasis there, it felt to me was on the unnatural that they were designed yeah. and spliced and created, not, not of the natural world. So my uh, wish for like races is kind of half true. We don't really have different races as much as we have, you know, monstrous creature creatures and creations for it. Yeah. And I, I think that actually is really emphasized by the first image that we get of the drag car, right? Cause Rand first notices it when he sees like a shape go across the, the moon mm-hmm. and his initial thought is like, Oh, that's a bat. And then what stands out to him, this actually for some reason has stuck with me is the thing, the image that sticks with him is that it is a bat that is flying like a bird of prey, that it's not mm-hmm. flapping its wings repeatedly the way that bats do. It's like gliding on these giant wings. And I, I think that kind of fits this the story you're telling about how unnatural these creatures are supposed to be that they don't even like move through the world in the same way that the natural creatures they're based on might and you know to me I think that's what kind of sells that deep world building of these things being created is just that the odd ways that they sometimes interact with things it's like oh that's not how bats work this is clearly not just bat creature it's it's some weird amalgamation of other things along with bat keeps me wanting more. You know, uh, I think my, my other flaw besides dreams is I have trouble picturing fantasy creatures. So, um, you know, one of the things I, uh, certainly will be doing as, as they come up is, is just Googling them and, you know, a series yeah. this old, there are either official or just plenty of fan creations of them. Uh, and I just went through this with the other fantasy series. I'm remembering the dandelion dynasty. I think I've mentioned that by yeah. name before. Um, and, uh, they, they had this big creature and I'm like, I cannot picture this thing. And then, you know, it was unfortunate that such a new book, there were like 12 interpretations, right. and they were all very different. So, um, you know, and, and I think Lord of the Rings was always very much that way till the Hildebrandt's kind of set a version of things. And yeah. then, and then the films really kind of built on that and often directly or, or changed it, but, but locked in something there. So, so, uh, you know, obviously the show would be helpful and I'm sure has set yeah. some of these things. Um, and when we get there, I'll, I'll probably, you know, you know, there's there's there are funny psychological studies about that that now if you read harry potter you picture daniel radcliffe instead of whoever you actually thought was harry potter before right. that i'm sure that's exactly like this reading i'm sure you have those creatures in mind and so on so actually this is something that i don't know whether you know about me but fits very well with what you just described i am very odd in that i'm pretty sure i've never had this like diagnosed or anything but i'm pretty sure i actually have a condition that I have learned from the internet is called aphantasia or aphantasia, something like that. I don't picture things in my head, right? Oh. If, you, if you ask me like picture Steph, like my, my wife is named Steph for those of you who are not aware. <laughs> uh, I can't. I don't. I don't have pictures in my head, right? I have descriptions. I, I think through things. But so as I've been reading these books, I have been hearing the actors' voices in my head when I read character voices. Oh, okay. But no, I'm not picturing anything. I, I never have. I never will. That's just how my brain works. Hmm. Oh, well, I was not expecting res- revelations about your psychology tonight. So, I mean, <laughs> we're not going to top that. Uh, I would ask you to lay down on a couch and tell me how it makes you feel, but that is not the type of doctor I am. So uh, it would really be inappropriate for that. Uh, so are you good on these chapters? Yeah, I think that's pretty much all I had. Awesome. So, uh, all right. 
faithful listeners, uh, you know, looking, I, I think this ends up being a little longer, but not dramatically longer uh, in terms of our, our show time. So uh, keep that in mind when you're voting for whether you like the, the three at once or you want us to stick to two. Uh, next episode, we will absolutely be returning to two chapters because this ends up being a little long uh, with just two chapters. Uh, so that is chapter 12 and chapter 13, Across the Terran. Uh, and uh, choices. Uh, it, I, I know how to pronounce choices. That's an easy one. Uh, so chapter 12 and 13 from the eye of the world uh, for the next episode. Uh, as always, uh, Tyler, thank you to you. You are a, a faithful guide uh, and continue to, uh, you know, steer me with just the, the right kind of firm, gentle balance as we continue through this. Uh, and thank you to all our listeners who continued uh, with us on this journey. Uh, Tyler made note of it. We are getting there. Uh, I just did a, a quick check and we're about 23% of the way through this book. So, you know, that's not nothing. Uh, and I, I hope you're enjoying it as we continue. So we look forward to seeing you next time uh, through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend the show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.